0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, into Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians two nineteen to the end of the chapter.
1: <clears throat> Let's give our attention to God's holy word. So then, you
0: are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We praise you for your word, great God. We praise you that, even as we have read now, that we are being built together by the Spirit to be the dwelling place of you, our great God. Be with us now, we pray, uh, in word and in ear. Uh, May we worship you, Lord God. May we give you the glory. May we rejoice to be in this place this night. And Lord, may May your spirit work in each one of us that we might submit all the challenges and struggles of body or soul to this moment of worship, that we might hear of the great privilege that is ours to be part of your church.
1: Bless us then, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Pastor Rockin showed us last week uh,
0: from verse 11 onwards of the uniting blessings of God's salvation, the uniting blessings, Jews and Gentiles previously separated, brought together, united into one body through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul continues and really concludes that argument of, of union and uniting Uh, describing that union between Jew and Gentile as the household of God, the household of God. And what do we learn about that household? We learn that that household of God is principally a divine institution wrought with divine hands. And yet, we are also called to work in that institution with human hands. Friends, we see here the household of God's is God's blessed dwelling place in the midst of his people. The household of God is God's blessed dwelling place as he dwells in the midst of his people. And we're going to see that really in three sections or three uh, arguments that Paul puts forward as he concludes this section on being one in Christ. First of all, in verse 19, we'll see that the household of God is filled with saints. The household of God is filled with saints. Then in verse 20, we'll see that the household of God uh, has a sure foundation a sure foundation. And then in verses 21 and 22, we'll see that the household of God is a holy temple, a holy temple. It's filled with saints. It has a sure foundation and is a holy temple. Firstly, there in verse 19, we see that the household of God is filled with saints. Now, to get to this point, because we understand that verse 19 begins with the words, so then, so then is a conclusion. 19 through 22 is the conclusion of Paul's argument in 11 to 18. Let's remind ourselves of the principles that Pastor Rockin showed us last week in verses 11 to 18. He reminded us firstly that the Gentiles were historically separated from God. But then secondly, through Christ, they had been brought near, so that thirdly, Jew and Gentile become a new race, a new humanity, a new body in Christ Jesus. And that new humanity, that unity and union that they have is now described in this way. It's described as the household of God. And that's what these verses speak of principally, the household of God. The logic of 18, or rather 19 through 22, is very clear. Verse 19, the Gentiles are no longer strangers, but members of the household of God. That household, verse 20, is founded on the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone, so that in 21 and 22, we see that household being built and joined together to become the dwelling place of God. That's essentially what's going on in this passage. In other words, we have a real development of the theology of the household of God. The household idea is written here before us. And perhaps you notice that the household idea starts and concludes with who we find in the household. Verse 19, it tells us that Jew and Gentile are now members and in that household. Verse 22 tells us God is in that household. God is with his people. He dwells in the midst of his people. That makes the household of God to be the most blessed environment on the face of the earth. The most blessed environment on the face of this earth. Note then verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Uh, Paul is concluding an argument which has gone like this. Christ has undone the work that sin has done in that Gentiles were alienated from God's people. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. From what were they, strangers and aliens? Verse 12 You were at that time Gentiles separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a staggering description of what it's like to be outside of Christ and outside of the church. But Paul continued verse 14, Christ has come and he has been their peace. And he has brought together these two previously separate uh, uh, factions, Jew and Gentile, and has made them one so that the two are now one new person, one new body. Paul says that new body is the household of God. There's been a change for Jew and there's been a change for Gentile. Notice that Gentiles were not required to become National or ethnic Jews. The Gentiles weren't required to receive circumcision in order to come into the household of God. Jew and Gentile have been changed. They are now the spiritual Israel, the spiritual people of God, the spiritual household of God. You are no longer, no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's really a summary statement of what Pastor Rockham said last week. What they once were is not what they are now. They are members of the most blessed household that has ever existed. That's fr- that's because, friends, it's the household of whom of God. God is the head. Of the household. He's head of the home. It's his home. The church is God's home, God's household, God's family, God's dwelling place. And we're not thinking of the building per se, we're thinking of the people. That's the biblical teaching that is on display here. God is. Is the architect? God is the designer. God is the builder. Or we could perhaps say it another way of a household. God is the father of that blessed household. However you describe it, God is the one acting here. God is building his household, and in that household, he has brought Jew and Gentile. Those who were separated have now become one. And they were admitted, whether Jew or Gentile, to that household, not by birth or ethnicity, but how? Chapter 2, verse 8, by faith. By, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So that all the members of that household, regardless of their distinction, are now saints and members of the household of God. Calvin writes of this matter, those who were formerly profane Gentiles, formerly profane and utterly unworthy to associate with godly persons, have been raised to distinguished honor in being admitted to be members of the same community with Abraham, with all the holy patriarchs and prophets and kings, nay, with the angels themselves. A household comprised of all of God's people throughout time, of which we, friends, are also members by faith. That's worth a thought. It's worth us pausing for one moment the implications of this truth. How do you view each other in this room tonight? How do you view Christians in other like-minded churches? Do we view each other as blood-bought fellow citizens and saints of the household of God? Friend, this teaching lays upon us the responsibility and duty to have a high view of God, a high view of each other, and a high view of the church. Do you have such a view? Now, Paul states that that household, the blessed household of God, has a foundation. It's a household built upon something. That's our second point. The household of God has a sure foundation, verse 20. And as we consider verse 20, we see two distinct but conjoined elements to this foundational truth. There is the foundation proper and then there is the cornerstone. We know that the foundation is something that the building sits upon. We're talking about that which gives stability to the whole building. But then we also have in the verse the cornerstone. And historically, the cornerstone was the the stone around which the whole building was built. All the lines of the building in every dimension took their lead from the cornerstone. The cornerstone was then the guiding principle of the whole building. We read this in verse 20. The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So what does Paul mean? We have the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does he mean by this? Well, the apostles bit is somewhat easy. He's talking about those 12 called by Christ, including Matthias, to replace Judas, men called, set apart by Christ, and then sent out, that's the meaning of the word apostle, sent out with a peculiar function and duty. Apostles was given the peculiar ministry, those who saw Christ, who were sent out peculiarly to represent Christ in word and in leadership. In word and in leadership they were to speak God's word to the church, and more importantly, many of them would go on to write God's word for the church, the scriptures. The prophets, there's a lot of debate about who these prophets are. My my position is that almost certainly this is not the old covenant prophets, this is the new covenant prophets. Those who also were given the authority and empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word to the New Covenant Church in an age when Scripture was not completed. The early church did not have the Bible as we know it. It was still being written. And so God, as we see it at Pentecost and beyond, equipped some by the ministry of the Spirit to extraordinarily prophesy, to teach the word. In other words, the foundation of the church comes upon is those who were called and set apart in peculiar fashion for a limited time only because there's no more apostles and there's no more prophets in the church, those set apart to teach the word in a peculiar fashion. It's only the apostles and the prophets for that limited time, Paul says those who spoke the word and represented God in ruling are the foundation of the new covenant church. Yet lest we think that the church is just a human institution, as some suggest, we should never forget the divine character of the church. Because here we have the words, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's emphatic here in the Greek. Christ Jesus himself. Could have left that word out and we'd get the same teaching, but the Spirit wants us to realize he himself and no other is the, ch- is the cornerstone. Christ Jesus, not just the man, the God man the eternal Son incarnated in flesh. He is the cornerstone of the church of God. You see, we don't take our lead from mere men. The apostles and prophets called by God, equipped by God, and yet the guiding principle, as it were, the one from whom the church receives all its direction and alignment is Christ Jesus himself. He is the aligning factor of the church. From him, the design of the church receives all its direction. All the lines of what the church is come from the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And the simple application of this to us, friends, is clear. Everything we believe, everything we say, everything we do as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be aligned with the Savior. It's a simple principle. Must be aligned with the Savior. Must be aligned with his word. He is the first principle of the church. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. From him we receive our alignment, our marching orders. And where the church, where we do not align with the principles that Christ has given us, there is a great and urgent need that we immediately repent. Immediately repent. You read from Nehemiah 10, how they reconfirmed the covenant, one thing they said is we won't, take, we won't take daughters from the nations round about and we won't give our daughters to them. By the end of Nehemiah, that's precisely what they're doing. Because they didn't take their alignment from the revealed will of God. And that tells us, friends, that there is an inherent and required humility to be part of the church of Jesus Christ inherent and required. What do I mean by that? Yes, the church is called to make judgments. What is right, what is wrong, what is wise, what is unwise. We're called to examine preaching to see that it be faithful. We're required to worship in a certain way that God has prescribed. The whole of our life must follow this pattern of Christ. And that means, friends, you can't read scripture, you can't practice Christianity, you can't live in the church simply as a means to prove that you are already right. All this can't exist simply to confirm that everything in your life is already good, already right. That's the required inherent humility of belonging to the church. We don't set the rules. We seek to be conformed to a standard outside of us. You are not the cornerstone. I am not the
1: cornerstone. Jesus Christ is. The humility is this. If Christ is the cornerstone,
0: If Christ is the starting point, if he is the situating point, the measuring point, we are called to change and conform, not the church. And the great error of the church throughout the ages is that it has sought to conform itself to the expectation of the world. Well, Christ has greater expectation than the world. He is the chief cornerstone and we must be faithful to him. Friends, if you've existed in the church for any length of time without change, you might need to take a good look at yourself. Change is a necessity in the church of Christ. And that's not just proven by the fact that Christ is the cornerstone. It's proven by what Paul will now say in verses 21 and 22 about the household of God being a holy temple, a holy temple, our third consideration. Notice first the structure. The structure of the church we see here is being joined together. We read this, Christ himself being the cornerstone, then verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Paul essentially repeats that same truth then in verse 22. In him you are also being built together, there's the joining together, now there's the building together, into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. The structure is being joined together, is being built together. Notice, first of all, the tense and what we call the mood of the verb being joined together. The tense is present. It is happening. And it is continually happening. It is something that is happening, present and continues to happen. The church is being joined together. But if you look at the Greek, the mood of that verb is also passive, which means that we are not doing the joining together, though that is a call for all Christians. God is doing the joining together. The same is true also for the verb grows and also being built together in verse 22. It's an important, in fact, it's a vitally important truth. We see it there in those last few words, by the Spirit. God is working in His church by the spirit what's he doing he is joining us together he's joining us together we've already seen this verses 11 to 18 speak of that remarkable joining together of those who were formerly aliens enemies jew and gentile god brought them together made a new man out of the out of the two they became one the church, the household of God, is being joined together by the Holy Spirit. It's being built up. It's being strengthened. It's being increased. It's growing in grace and in unity. But all parts are growing. Joined together grows into a holy temple. We can't be growing apart or separately. We have to be together. In fact, that is what Paul says the Spirit is doing. It's a great argument against schism in the church. We are joined together. Think of it this way. Do we really think that God has gone to such great lengths to save us from sin and then bring us into the church only to let us make a mess of it on our own. Do we really think God's going to do that? No, the great actor, the person at work in these verses is not us principally, it's God. God is doing this. God is granting the growth. Well, learning here what we saw also back in verse 10, that God is in Inseparably invested in church growth and in church unity. God is invested, and He is an investor who will never walk away. He will never walk away. So, how does the church grow? How are we joined together? Well, by its members growing, by you and me all of us, growing and seeking to conform our ideas, our behavior with the grand plan of God, which is, in whom the whole structure structure being joined together. What we saw back in verse 10, we see again, God is invested in the growth of his church, and God is invested in the growth of individual christians in holiness and i know from talking to you some of you perhaps all of us at times are discouraged by the rate of growth in holiness that you see in yourself if you are discouraged consider this our failure in sanctification and there are such things could be for several reasons It could be that you're not interested in growing. It could be that you don't think you need to grow. Or it could be that you've misunderstood the foundation of the biblical doctrine of holiness. Your efforts in holiness and obedience will be fruitless if you don't understand the foundation of all those efforts. Your efforts in sanctification will be fruitless if you don't understand that the principal worker, person at work, in your holiness, is not you, but God himself. Pastor Rocken preached on it three weeks ago, maybe? Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is at work. That's the foundation of our efforts. God is at work, and you must be at work as well. I say this with care, and I hope you understand it. In holiness, God has called you to enter into a partnership with him. It's a partnership of of great inequality. He is at work. He has revealed that, chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 21, and verse 22. And we are called to be at work, that we should walk in those good works. God has called you to enter into his work to rest on his promises, to rest on his revealed will, to take seriously his inscripturated desires to make
1: you holy. Take seriously what he says here. He is joining us together.
0: He has prepared good works that we should walk in them. Situate what you do as a Christian upon the foundation of what God has done, is doing, and has promised to do in your life. Not only are we being joined together, we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul writes in verse 22 also, In him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God. Again, the tenses are that this is happening and is continuing to happen, and it tells us that God is doing it. In fact, the text is explicit. The Holy Spirit is at work. And it means this, growth in the unity of the church body, though attacked at times, though imperceptible at other times, is nonetheless real and it is happening because god the holy spirit the eternal spirit the almighty spirit he is at work he is at work god is and will dwell in the midst of his people that's one of the central themes of scripture god in the midst of his people And just to prove that point, Paul uses an analogy here or a picture uh, where he calls us a holy temple in the Lord, a holy temple. That's a fascinating thought when we trace out through Scripture the theology of of the temple. Uh, Scripture teaches that Christ and the believer are united together through faith scripture teaches also that the church and Christ are united together as he is the head the body we are the spouse and so on here we're told we are the temple we are a dwelling place for god the spirit think on this for a moment the temple preceded by the tabernacle filled with glory filled with remarkable value and worth chief of which was the fact that god dwelt in it in the midst of his people they encamped around him and yet temple life and tabernacle life and temple presence of god came with a serious demarcation between god's place and our place or the israelites place So much so that the Israelites, the average Israelite, got nowhere near the holy of holies. And when, if they did, they'd be put to death. But that changed, did it not? When the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, came. So he teaches us in John chapter 2, that he was the dwelling place of God amongst men. He tabernacled, it says in John 1, in their midst. He was indeed the true temple, the true dwelling place of God in the midst of men. And yet here is Paul saying that the church is a temple, a dwelling place of God. We are the holy temple, the dwelling place of God. The conclusion of temple imagery in Scripture is Revelation chapter 22 where John writes of the new Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No temple, gone, disappeared. Why? Such is the intimacy of union and communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the people of God in the new heavens and new earth that no temple or anything like it is necessary. And what we are now, friends, is a shadow of the blessings to come. What this place is, not the building, the people. And all the blessedness and joy and gladness, yes, there's troubles and strife at times, they'll be removed. But all the blessedness and joy and gladness and service that is this place is but a poor picture of what is to come. No temple. Though we are God's temple now, we shall not need such in heaven. So close will be the connection between the triune God and their people. And that tells us something about ourselves now. We are now God's
1: dwelling place right now. This is remarkable, isn't it, friends? Jew and Gentile
0: becoming one, becoming more than that, becoming the dwelling place of God. Friends, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the principal sphere, the first sphere of his supernatural and blessed operations. This place, like no other, God manifests himself.
1: And I don't mean Shiloh, I mean the church, though we hope Shiloh also. That's what we are now. God's people, God's household,
0: designed and designated by God himself as a holy dwelling place for himself. Is it not remarkable that the Almighty is now
1: dwelling in our midst? Staggering. Friends, what a position of honour we hold as the household of God. How esteemed are we
0: that God should call us his children. God should make us his household, that we have the dwelling place of God in our midst now. So much so, friends, at this place, during this hour, with this people, and the wonder of God is that he's everywhere. He's not just confined to us. Every true church, this place, this hour, this people, We are the most privileged place on the face of the earth. Actually, I think I've got a typo in my notes. It says here we're the most privileged palace on the face of the earth, not just place. Both are true.
1: This is a palace of God. Do we think God lives in a shed? The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, yet he's here with us. us
0: here it is friends like no other place on the face of the earth where heaven meets her and you get to be part of that morning and evening week after week after week after week month after month year after year morning and evening you get to be the dwelling place
1: of God. Such is God's love for you, dear Christian. And that means there's a great responsibility as we walk in those doors. And we need to take this seriously. Do we come prepared or unprepared? Are we ready for worship or not? You must ask yourselves, are you preparing Saturday evening, indeed the whole
0: week, to re-enter God's presence? Have we mended relationships that need mending before we bring our sacrifice of praise and lay it on the altar? Have we readied ourselves for the worship of the true and living God? Or we can ask other questions, are you serving the church? Are you growing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you active in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you being knit together with the brethren of this church? Never forget what is said to whom much has been given and much has been given to us. Much will be required.
1: And friends, ask yourself this. Why wouldn't you serve? Why wouldn't you spend your life for Christ and his church? This is the greatest place to be, this side of glory. Make no mistake about that. Friends, may God grant to each one of us
0: a grand view of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ a grand view of the foundation and of the great
1: cornerstone that we might serve our Savior well. Let's pray. Surely you are good to Israel, to us your people. We joyously and readily
0: confess there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath. We praise you that you have bestowed upon us, Lord God, such a wonderful gift. You should call us your sons. You've given us a hope so great and so
1: divine. May we purify ourselves from sin. Even this night. May we serve your household with joy and gladness
0: all the days of our lives. Raise up the children of this church, Lord God, and another generation after them, and another after them, until Christ returns, that this might be a faithful household of God. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight, that we may desire
1: and we might do your good pleasure. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.